and welcome, and thank you for joining our 100th episode of Disrupt TV. My name is Bala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce, and your co-host on Disrupt TV for the next hour. Disrupt TV is a weekly show where we learn from some of the best and brightest executives on topics of leadership, business technology, and innovation. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions using hashtag DisruptTV. We've interviewed over 240 guests on DisruptTV, so also please check out our video podcast on Vimeo, SoundCloud, and iTunes. You can see Ray in the background. This is our 100th episode. Unfortunately, Ray is in a, on an airplane, but hopefully we can hear him. He may be able to uh, say hello. I'm not really sure. <laughs> but in case Ray starts taking off in the air, it's our privilege, privilege to have Doug Henshin, uh, Vice President and Principal Analyst at Constellation Research as my co-host for the next hour. Doug's data to decision research examines how organizations employ data analysis to reimagine their business models and gain a deeper understanding of their customers. Prior to joining Constellation, Doug was the executive editor at Information Week, where he led analysis and data business intelligence optimization and smart application research and news coverage for Information Week. He was also the editor-in-chief of Intelligent Enterprise. Welcome, Doug, to Disrupt TV. Hey, it's great to be here, Vala. I, I saw the lineup for this week's show and was uh, going to be sure to tune in. And then uh, at a late uh, request to co-host, because uh, as usual, Ray's plans are uh, very fluid. Uh, so I'll try to live up to his uh, standards of energy and uh, maybe not quite his standards of, of chaos with the travel. So uh, I'm here in uh, New Jersey and uh, I'll be home for uh, a good week, which is unusual for Ray to be at home for a day. Uh, but I'm pl pleased to be here and uh, talk to some folks I've known for a while. Well, it's our privilege to have an extraordinary first guest. Our guest is Dave Kellogg. He's the CEO at Host Analytics. Dave is an experienced enterprise software executive. He's an angel investor, board member, advisor, thought leader, and a blogger. We'll learn more about his blogs as we talk to Dave. Dave joined Host Analytics in 2012, and on, under his leadership, the company has dramatically increased the size of its subscription base has raised more than 50 million in venture capital, won numerous awards for their technology and solutions. Prior to host analytics, Dave was a senior vice president and GM of the services cloud at Salesforce, the company's second largest product line. Before that, he was a CEO of MarkLogic, and he grew the company from zero dollars in revenue to 80 million run rate in less than six years. He's the author of a highly regarded Kel blog, where he covers topics ranging from startups, metrics, venture capital, Silicon Valley to cloud, analytics, and so on and so forth. His latest blog was really guiding CEOs on how they should engage with the board and what type of questions they should be asking. We'll talk about that. He's a must follow on Twitter at K-E-L-L-B-L-O-G, Kellblog. Welcome, Dave, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks, Val. It's great to be here. Thank you, sir. Doug, we'll let you start with the first question. Well, Dave, you've been uh, a luminary in the industry for a long time. I know a lot of people who you mentored in the industry, uh, but tell us about your latest gig. Why did you join and what are you doing at Host? Sure. Uh, so at Host Analytics, we do enterprise performance management. Um, that is, we build applications that help finance departments with tasks like financial planning, budgeting, reporting, consolidations. Um, I've been at the company five years. 
And I joined for a couple of reasons. I, th I think one was I actually love the space. I'm, I'm kind of a closet FP&A guy, financial planning and analysis. Uh, I love thinking about the future, making plans, doing scenario analysis. I think what we do is inherently quite interesting. Um, and in addition, I thought it was a great chance to kind of cloud disrupt the space, right? This is a space that's owned for the most part by Hyperion, right? They, they got bought by Oracle what, for $3.3 million in 2006. Uh, and they were the 800 pound gorilla. And, and we have a chance to kind of, uh, you know, to Salesforce them, if you will, to come in with uh, all the advantages of the cloud. So Dave, like seven or eight years ago, I wrote a column in Information Week saying that I thought corporate performance management, enterprise performance management, whatever you want to call it, might be the hottest new category following CRM. I was wrong. It turned out to be things like HCM and marketing. Is that changing now? Is the time finally coming? Yeah, well, I think, look, finance has been a little bit slow to move to the cloud, right? If you think about the departmental adoption of cloud technology, you know, the sales people went and did it first because they're kind of swashbuckling. You know, they don't care if IT is mad at them because they're going to bring in all the revenue. Uh, and then, you know, marketing went afterwards and HR went afterwards, but, you know, CFOs are a little more conservative, right? They're, uh, you know, what's the Dilbert line? Change is good, you go first, right? So, you know, they'll sign off on the purchase order to buy Salesforce and they'll sign off uh, to buy a Cornerstone or, you know, an HR system, but, but for their stuff, uh, they can still be a little, a little reluctant. So uh, I think that explains it. I view the market as kind of phase lag, like we're, you know, 10 years behind maybe, but, but we'll get there. What changes do you see in uh, the EPM space, Dave? Do you think the, really the, the great buzz and, and unquenchable uh, you know, thirst and curiosity about machine learning and AI and the fact that businesses want to get to that state of predictive analytics and being able to understand the next best action, will, will some of this drive adoption of enterprise performance management in the next few years? Sure. I mean, I think there's kind of two questions in there. Uh, one's about the future of EPM, one's about AI and machine learning. Let me do the second one. Um, you know, when you think about AI, machine learning, and finance, the first obvious application is forecasting, right? I mean, that's what these guys do. And, and one of the surprises to me on working with finance departments is they think about forecasting in two very different ways. Most people, when you say forecasting, we're thinking about revenue, we're thinking about regression models, we're thinking about, you know, this person's a sandbagger and this person's optimistic, uh, and how do we look at their history, right? That's how we think about, that's how I think about forecasting. Um, finance people often think about forecasting in a very bottom-up way. Hey, you budgeted 100 bucks for this, how much are you gonna spend? You budgeted that for this, how much are you gonna spend? So when you talk about finance, there's really two sides of forecasting, kind of sales forecasting, which is kind of can be model driven, top down regression. AI machine learning is great there, not only for internal variables, but external variables. That, that's a big breakthrough. If you can regress your sales against gross domestic product or the price of a commodity, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. You'll often find your sales are more linked to that than some of your internal variables, like maybe your pipeline coverage, right? Um, and then on the inside, there's an opportunity as well to help with this kind of traditional, very bottom up process of line by line. You had this much to spend, how much are you going to spend? That, that's labor intensive. So I think really on both sides of how finance is forecasting, kind of revenue and expense, there's big opportunity. Hey, Dave, uh, in January, I published a report about how uh, AI and machine learning are going to change BI and analytics. You touched on it there a little bit, but go deeper into how you see uh, ML and AI changing the performance management space. 
Sure. I mean, so first, I've always been a believer, and you know, we've worked together a long time, even before intelligent enterprise, all the way back. And, and I've always been a believer in general that AI is more about making apps smart than making smarter BI tools, right? That that what would I rather have? So, some app that gave me a, a like a, some AI tool that said this is the best leads to call, right? So it scores the leads, you know, something like Infer. Um, or would I rather have that built into my Salesforce system so I click on a screen I'm about to call and I say sort by lead quality or you know, sort by most expected to buy. So I've always been a believer in what I call smart apps, using AI to make operational apps smart. Um, BI is an independent category of tools. I mean, yeah, it's useful. Analysts need report writers. Analysts need slicer dicers. But to, and you can make those tools smarter, clearly, right? We can do predictive models um, and regressions. That's good, but, but I think the mainstream is to build smarter apps. And I, I view EPM as an app, so, so we can definitely take this technology and, and make EPM smarter. Uh, we can also use process automation. It wasn't part of the question, but a huge amount of what finance departments do are process flows that are very labor intensive. Um, so we, I, I see both autom automation. Um, and, and by the way, you know, looking for bad expense reports, right? That's a classification mm -hmm. problem, right? So you can use uh, classification technology there. Um, so I think there's a lot of opportunities in the core EPM apps for, for planning and budgeting. Um, right now, most people do simple trajectories, right? They just say, give you what you had last year plus 5%. Um, I think we can do better than that. Uh, both tying the strategy on the one hand and then using uh, models about what you've actually used in the past. Because uh, quite often we, we actually don't look at what we spend. It's interesting what you said about it being an app. Uh, to what degree do you think planning, particularly, might be embedded in other apps? So, so EPM shows up as an embedded element within other applications. Sure. I think EPM is a little bit like, you know how light is both a particle and a wave or whatever. I, I think EPM is kind of both an app and a platform. Because uh, in one sense, it's an app that, hey, it's a finance buyer. You need domain expertise to, to build EPM apps or to sell them, right? You need to know a lot about how companies budget, plan, forecast, consolidate. Huge amount of domain expertise like an app. On the other side, it is like a platform because in a perfect world, you'd have one planning platform across the organization, right? It wouldn't be the financial plan. It would be the company plan, right? And too often what happens in companies is finance builds this plan. The departments will maybe mail a spreadsheet in with some summarized line items, you know, like marketing, this much on people, this much on programs, this much on infrastructure. And all the detail lives out in Excel and departmental spreadsheet. Uh, and finance kind of has this hollowed out plan. Um, in a perfect world, you could tie those things together, right? So, so a company could see, you know, across 10 different marketing departments, how much they're spending on a given analyst firm, for example, right? Um, but without the detail in the corporate plan, that's all gone. So, and the same thing applies to tying sales plan to the marketing plan. I mean, my personal favorite example is if you hire 10 more salespeople, most people update the sales plan and they forget to update marketing. Hey, do those 10 salespeople need any marketing? Oh yeah, they, are they going to get any customers? Oh yeah, they are. So we need some more cross-liner agents. We need some more professional services guys, right? You need to look at the whole enterprise. Uh, and in that sense, I view planning as a platform because in a perfect world, you'd want all of that tied together. That's, that's, that's incredibly important advice. In your latest uh, blog titled, The Question That CEOs Too Often Don't Discuss With The Board, you stated that what does success look like as the question that needs to be asked? And you said you're always shocked that this simple question can generate so much debate. 
You also followed up by saying, uh, I think it was a Stanford professor who said it was your favorite definition of strategy, which was the plan to win. Now you ran a multi-billion dollar business at Salesforce. You worked directly with Mark Benioff, the founder. What are some of the lessons you learned in terms of developing a strategy and guiding a board and other senior executives in terms of what winning should look like? Yeah, so it's a two, uh, I'm going to separate that one in two, too. So at Salesforce, I learned a lot of things. I mean, it was a great company to work at, as you well know. Uh, probably the biggest thing I learned from Mark was the whole concept of Shoshin, uh, the beginner's eyes, the beginner's mind, I should say. And, and I just think that's a phenomenal concept where you can look at an old product. All of us, we spend our careers doing this stuff. We look at the same problems for you know, 20, 30 years, and, and we see them in the same way. And if you can kind of break that paradigm, and say, let me look at this through beginner's eyes, or in a beginner's mind is the actual term, um, then I think you can get really creative solutions to problems. So I think that was, I had other takeaways from Salesforce, but that was the big one. And then uh, on the topic of CEOs and boards, as I mentioned in the post, I just, I think it's really funny that they, it's a topic they never get around to talking about. That they're so busy about the operating plan and this quarter and how sales going and what's the pipeline. That nobody ever says, hey, do we have any level of agreement on what success looks like? What are, what are we actually trying to accomplish here? And because for some people, it's a potentially awkward conversation. I think they avoid it. It's potentially conflictual. Um, so in my belief is that, you know, it's better to get these things on the table sooner rather than later. Hey, Dave, you've seen success at, uh, at several companies that really flourished, like back to business objects. You spend nine, nine years there, you went from 30 million to a billion. You had a stop at Salesforce on its track to 10 billion. Um, you know, what do you, you know, what, speaking of that success, what, is, what are the tipping points you see? How do you know when these companies have that potential and when they're on the right track to, to a, a growth like that? Yeah, it's a really good point, Doug, because I feel like I've done, uh, I've done both types of companies, right? I always say you could be sailing upwind or sailing downwind, right? You know, and at MarkLogic, we were sailing upwind, right? <laughs> and you can build Before a business, it's time, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? Because uh, you need to be very focused on given solution areas, right? And very focused on value creation. Because, you know, uh, to pick MarkLogic, nobody wanted to go buy an XML database system, right? They bought one because it solved a problem that they had that nothing else could solve. Um, and then you had to find those problems and then sell the value around those problems. And that's a totally different experience in my mind from a downwind market, like in business objects or even uh, back in my career at Ingress with the relational databases in the 80s, massive tailwind. Um, and in those markets, it tends to be about differentiation, right? And saying, hey, it's not so much like you're going to buy one. They, they call and say, hey, we're going to buy an EPM tool, right? Or yeah. we're going to buy a BI tool. You don't need to convince me to buy one but I would need some convincing on why to buy yours, right? <laughs> um, exactly. So one, of my, uh, one of my little isms is uh, a lot of companies spend time startups like, are we in a hard market? Are we not in a hard market? And, and my simple answer is if you have to ask the question, you're not, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> if you were in one, you'd be too busy executing, right? The phone, you know, so, exactly. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So, so you spent your, uh, your entire career competing against massive companies. Um, can you talk to us about maybe when you started five and a half years ago to today, have things changed in terms of how small, innovative, agile companies compete against big market leaders? Yeah, I think, well, let's see what's the biggest change. I mean, 
Probably the biggest change for me is the mega vendors woke up to the cloud, right? I feel like Salesforce got a little bit of a free ride. Uh, and for those who are old enough, you know, listening to Larry Ellison talk about cloud was like listening to Ken Olson talk about Unix, right? <laughs> <laughs> you really remember, it's the same thing. Unix is snake oil, right? Uh, the cloud is snake oil. So, so I think for many years, the early cloud vendors got a little bit of a free ride from the mega vendors because they kind of poo-pooed the cloud and ignored it. That's certainly not the case today, right? They, they all, whether or not they have good cloud strategies or good cloud products, I'll let you guys tell people, because uh, that's all over the map, but they certainly have a strong cloud message, right? But regardless of the reality of their products, they're all talking cloud. So I think one big change in the last several years is the cloud itself, it's a hard differentiator, right? Even Salesforce back in the day would try and pitch multi-tenancy, and people don't want to talk about that so, that so much so more. So I think the cloud, while incredibly important, um, your cloudiness or your cloud factor is a, is a harder thing to market. But I think the thing that hasn't really changed is just best of breedism. You know, I mean, I'll pick business objects. Uh, we competed with Oracle from inception, uh, and we built a you know a billion dollar revenue business and sold for six point eight billion dollars, hiding in plain sight. Right? They knew we were there the whole time. Uh, but the issue was, I always felt like they just didn't care that much about BI. Right? You can't care about everything. So, so one of the tricks to me is to kind of, if you're going to pick on a mega vendor, try and pick on something they don't care about that much. Um, and, and that requires some sense because they're never going to say that, right? <laughs> but, but you can kind of figure it out by where their best people are and how much they're investing. Um, and, and that to me is always is a great plan of attack. That's great advice. Hey, Dave, uh, you're very active in Silicon Valley. You're on a lot of boards. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, I know so many people that talk about their experience and your mentorship of them uh, over the years, particularly from uh, business objects days on, on going on from there. Um, tell us about your, your membership on boards. You've been a luminary in a couple of uh, really important companies. Um, currently, uh, Alation, a company, I see them sort of setting the tone in catalog, and now every company is talking about their new catalog. Yeah, absolutely. So two, quick thing, first on business objects, yeah, I'm incredibly proud of the team we had there. I think from my marketing team, there's at least a dozen, maybe 20 CMOs have sprung out of that team and even a couple of CEOs. So so what a great gang that was. I'm very proud of them. Um, on Alation, yeah, Alation, I, I love Alation. I, I, Angel invested first and joined the board later. Uh, love the founder, Sachin, brilliant guy. And, and the notion of a data catalog to me, uh, it was just kind of so, it was one of those obvious and hindsight sort of things. It was like, oh wow, people can really use that. Because um, the idea, right, behind Alation is that there's, there's too much data, right? There's too many different databases. I remember at Salesforce, I'd show up at meetings and everyone was always very careful to footnote their slides on where stuff came from, but it was coming from everywhere, right? I mean, they're listing business objects reports, they're listing databases, um, and it's like, wow, this is kind of, at least when I was at Salesforce, a little bit of tableau hell, right? Because everybody had these beautiful charts, but you were just kind of wondering where the data came from uh, and, and were we comparing apples and oranges? And so that, there's two parts to relation. Uh, the first part is more intriguing, which is to use machine learning to figure out where most people go to find out gross margin for a given product. Um, and because it might be 15 different places to answer that, and, and, and they use machine learning to figure out where most people go. So kind of if you don't know where the uh, where the cafeteria is, just kind of follow the crowd at lunchtime, right? Uh, and, and that's kind of what Alation does for data. Uh, the other side of Alation is they actually have a kind of a, a Wikipedia style catalog of data as well. 
So you can use crowdsourcing. So they, they but what do you bring to them? What do you bring when you're a board member? Uh, you know, what is your motivation to help these companies out? Oh, that's a great question. Um, but I really like working with brilliant founders who have great technology ideas because um, I learn a lot from them, right? I, I, it keeps me really in touch with the technology and the cutting edge. And I can kind of let them benefit from, you know, my 25 years of scars <laughs> and experiences trying to build these businesses, working with boards, managing people, um, particularly working with boards because there, there's no book on that. There's no course on that, right? A lot of this other stuff, you know, there's a course on HR and a course on finance and on marketing. Uh, but some of this stuff, it's just got venture capital fundraising. Now there's blogs, but 10 years ago, there was nothing um, if, if you wanted to learn these things. So uh, that's what I like. I, I view it as a win-win. Well, I'm sure at the next board meeting, the question is going to be, what does success look like? And uh, there may not be management books, but they're certainly your blog. So we're here with Dave Kellogg, CEO of Host Analytics. We all encourage you to follow Dave on his Twitter account at K-E-L-L-B-L-O-G and definitely read Dave's blogs. They're incredibly insightful. And uh, thank you very much for being on Disrupt TV. Thanks, Thanks for having Dave. me, Val. Thanks, Doug. Great to see you again. Have a great weekend. Cheers. That, right. What, what an important guy in the industry. Yeah. And, and you know, I love what, what, what we love, Doug, and you know, Ray and I, we, we have the privilege of having extraordinary CEOs that are building incredible companies, doing profound work. And they are generous enough to come spend time with us. And, um, and our next guest is no exception. Uh, another incredible CEO. We have Billy Bosworth, CEO of Data Stacks. Uh, Billy's responsible for strategy, growth, day-to-day -day operations at Data Stacks with uh, more than 500 customers in over 50 countries. His company's providing data management to the world's most innovative companies. And you go check out the logos there, and it's quite impressive. Billy's got 20 years of experience in the database industry, worlds ranging from a DBA to a senior executive and now CEO. Prior to Data Stacks, Billy was VP and GM of the database unit at Quest Software. He's another uh, great follow on Twitter at Billy underscore B-O-S-W-O-R-T-H, Billy underscore Bosworth. Welcome, Billy, to Disrupt TV. Thank you guys for having me. It's great to be here, and uh, it's always great to hear from Dave. Uh, met him a few times live, but I'm an avid reader of his blog. Uh, he is a wealth of knowledge for sure. He really is. He really is. Doug, please, with the first question. So, Billy, tell us about uh, your role at Datastax. What's, what's driving uh, that business? And, uh, you know, your first time as a CEO there, what are some of the things you've learned? Yeah, it's, it's really been great. And, and by the way, up front, I'm going to apologize. I'm fighting a bit of a cold. So if I have to mute for a minute um, to, to not cough on the audience, give me, give me a little grace on that one, if, if you don't mind. Me too, me too. Uh, but I, I've been around databases my whole life as either an engineer or a database administrator or a tools provider. And the really exciting thing about Datastacks is our, our mission is to think about how do we take our technology and our expertise and make it possible for our customers to thrive through that innovation that they're all trying to, to find, but with their data and, and making sure that their data is wherever, whenever, and however they need it. And that is, that is very, very challenging uh, under the cover, so to speak, in the infrastructure layer to get that right and uh, what I saw happening in this world post-relational databases um, just gave me new life as a, as a kind of a data expert. And um, coming to Datastax, getting to grow the company I joined, we were very small, about, about 20 people. 
Uh, we're about 500 now, growing pretty quickly. And it, it's been a great ride. That's awesome. Congratulations to you. So Doug writes on his research in terms of data to decisions. And uh, you know, what are some of the business and societal impacts of this massive data collection? Certainly the news cycle recently has talked about the importance and really opening people's eyes in terms of the importance of technology and, and its impact on society. Can you talk a little bit about you know, this whole data collection process and its impact on business and societies? Yeah, that, that, that's kind of one of those questions. Like, so tell me about the universe, right? Like, <laughs> where are you? 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in five minutes, please. Um, it, it, it really is, I mean, you've heard all the cliches. Uh, about data being the new oil and data being the new driver of the economy. But the reality is that this is changing the, the fabric of our macroeconomic environment, changing the fabric of our personal lives, and uh, getting it right is everything. I mean, it's everything. If you can't get your data strategy right, I, I don't believe that your protection as a Fortune 50 company is gonna protect you in the next five to 10 years. I think, sadly, we've seen that all too often. Now we've seen it all too frequently. So <clears throat> now you have two very big buckets, right? You've got your consumer bucket, which is probably where a lot of the questions start to come. But now that's blending more and more with the business world because in the business world, in the commercial world, we all want to feel exactly like we feel in our private lives. We want the, the work systems to be as friendly and intuitive and easy as our systems that we use in our daily personal lives. So how do you do that? Well, you need data. I mean, at the end of the day, if you don't have the right data underneath to figure that out, then no amount of will and no fancy algorithm is gonna solve that problem for you. Even in AI, um, it's only as good as the data set upon which it's working. And that opens up all kinds of discussions around um, bias in, in the data sets, right? You know, bias in, bias out. If, if you're prejudicial going into a data set, the, I, the AI is gonna be prejudicial coming out. So these are opening up all sorts of societal questions, um, not the least of which is when we use the term we. What do we want? What do we want this data to look like? Well, who's we? We're a very diverse species, right? Lots of different economies. We're a global company. We do business in many countries. We have employees in many countries. We have customers in many countries. So I think that from, from our perspective, there's your universe answer, right? And then from, from our perspective, what we want to do is to be able to help enterprises who know that they need to transform, that they understand it. They don't need to be told that yet again. Hey, you need to digitally transform. No kidding. Thank you. It's like telling me I need water. But how do I get started? What's my first project? Where do I begin? And we think we have both the technology and the people to help them get that strategy in place because getting a few quick wins we're finding is, is paramount to success. If you try and do too much too fast and it takes too long and it fails, you're going to get discouraged in, in your whole organization. And so it's very, very important to accumulate some quick wins. Hey, Billy, it, it feels like, you know, we're sort of in a post big data world, those three V's. Everybody kind of assumes that the platforms are now there, now capable of doing that. And all the attention seems to be moving on to what you do with the data, the ML, the AI, the analysis and, and visibility around that. How is, uh, is this shift in focus uh, really impacting data management and governance and things that really have to be there, but nobody really wants to talk about anymore? Yeah, we all, we all want to wave the wand and say that the era of big data is like, we figured it out. Now let's get to the cool stuff. 
And the reality is uh, most companies haven't figured it out yet. And part of the reason why is exactly what you said. They run into, uh, you know, it's, it's funny to watch and sad and exciting when a, when a brilliant idea gets ganged up on by a brute bunch of facts. And the brute bunch of facts is the governance and the policies. And, the, and our European customers, as an example, sometimes what they tell me is they're not just worried about the current laws. They're worried about the velocity of change in the laws. The, the laws themselves are changing almost on a monthly or quarterly or yearly basis. So they're worried about the ability to keep up with that. And this is where this notion of, of data autonomy starts to come into play, that we, we really encourage people to, you need to take control of this asset called your data. You need to own that, you. Like you cannot just, you, that's not one that you can delegate to a different organization or a cloud provider or anything else. Because of this reason of understanding how to understand your data such that you can comply with those regulations and still at the same time, delight your customers. I think that one of the biggest changes that we're going to see, and I think in some sense you're already starting to see it, is um, I believe, and I think I'm seeing this in more and more companies, people are willing to participate in giving you their data when they fully understand what data they're giving you and how you're going to use it. And so we're all for transparency of what the companies are doing. We want those companies to be transparent. We think that's a good thing. We don't think it's a good idea to try and regulate that at a governmental level because I think that will stifle innovation and that will create an unbalanced playing field where if, if one country has very tight onerous regulations and another doesn't, now all of a sudden this one's got the ability to compete much faster. Uh, and it's also one of these things that's going to be very, very hard to control even if you tried. So we do spend a lot of time. GDPR is probably the first real world example in Europe where we have seen uh, this manifest. We've had to comply with it as a vendor. And we're also working with a lot of customers who must comply as a vendor to their customers. And uh, we're just now watching that unfold. It basically just went into effect a few months ago. So um, watch this space to, to see how that continues to evolve. You, uh, you have talked about uh, trust. You've talked about transparency. You've talked about welcoming diversity in order to minimize your blind spots and, and perhaps how you introduce biases into algorithms that ultimately automate your workflows and your decision-making process. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of th these are non-technological -technolo components. We're not talking about machine learning and AI and, and CRM and so on and so forth. But all of this, uh, the technology side, the people side, the culture, your North Star and ethos, all of that goes into your, into your data strategy. So how can a brand develop this transparent approach that best communicates how data is being used, who owns the data, and what are some of the benefits that the end user will, will, will gain based on you know, being a co-creator of this value? How do you do that? So, and the second part of the question is, who are you talking to at, at the enterprise? Is it the CMO that's leading the conversation? Is it the chief experience officer? I'm seeing more and more experience being talked about as the product and all of that underpinning is data. Or is it the CEO? Like who, who, who's the CXO that's your champion inside most of your clients? I'll answer them in reverse order because the, the second affects the first actually. So we, we do talk to everybody from the benefactor, which is the C-level 
all the way down to the architect and the engineer who has to make it all work. And what, what we're seeing today is a, uh, an impedance from the sea level mandate down to actually making it work. Uh, that's where the friction occurs. So th there's no sea level I talk to. By the way, if it's a customer experience initiative, that is now making the top three list of most uh, CEOs. You know, almost everyone I know of has an initiative that says, we must increase our ability to engage with customers. We must make that better. We must be more efficient. We must be more engaging. Um, so that's the big edict from the mountain. Now you got to go make it work. So now where does that fall? Well, it often falls on general managers. So if you have somebody that is the head of a particular unit, we're a very enterprise-based company, let me say that. Yeah. I really can't speak much to the mid-market and, and SMB, but I will tell you from an enterprise standpoint, the general managers are the ones tasked with either growing market share or stopping the erosion of market share. Yeah. So you do both by innovating. And so if we're talking to a general manager and she says, hey, we're, we're, we're really at risk of losing XYZ to you know, pick a company, uh, Amazon or whoever, right? We got we to morph the way we do this. We can explain the value to that. But then very, very quickly, the responsibility falls down to the technical people and to the yeah. architects. Yeah. And so they're the ones who have to put this together. And if you don't have, now I'm going to answer your first question. If you don't have the technology, the right technology to properly understand your data and to make your data work at the scale that you're going to need to for these new initiatives, the likelihood of failure is nearly 100%. So how do you start? Where do you begin? The first thing is a detailed understanding of what you already have. You've probably heard the saying, the companies only knew what they knew. <laughs> and that is, that is very, very accurate. And so how do you do that? Well, it's tough if you've just been dumping everything into giant data lakes, because a lot of that premise is, I'm not sure yet why I'm going to need it. I think I'm going <laughs> to need it, so I'll save it, and then I'll go figure it out later. And that's a daunting task in some cases. And so what, what we think is a good place to start is with your operational systems themselves, because that data is actually pretty well understood. If you transact with me and we do a, uh, an engagement where you browse some products, you, you throw it in your shopping cart, you pay me with your credit card, I know very detailed information about that transaction. So let's start by taking that data and see how we can enrich that. Can we make your next experience better? Can we maybe give you that better personalization angle? But well, how else do I engage with you? Where else can I go in the organization to bring some of that data in? And this is where we interface with a lot of legacy systems. Right. So we don't come in with some uh, grandiose, which would be idiocy if you ask me, uh, hey, throw everything else out, here we come. We're a new data technology, we're the new bright shiny object. That's nonsense to an enterprise. So what you really have to do is figure out who are the collaborative departments? How do you start bringing together the right connectivity of the systems of record of old with the new systems of record and make those incremental experiential changes. That's how we think you can get there and you can succeed. Because the digital natives, what I call, you know, some people, Scott Galloway calls them the four, somebody else calls them GAFA, you know, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and, and Apple. Um, they've got some advantages. One, many of them, with their new initiatives anyway, have come from a digital native experience. So their DNA is digital. They, they don't know anything else other than that. 
So they've got the raw horsepower with the technology and they've also got the DNA of how to use that digital experience to work with you and to change it. And so what we bring is the horsepower. We bring the technology to the enterprises of, of yesterday and say, this is how you're gonna be the enterprises of tomorrow. But then the burden is on them. They also, the enterprise themselves need to really get on board with this digital transformation and say, we're going to work in virtual teams across silos. Right. That, is, that is one of the biggest inhibitors that we see is still the siloed effect inside of enterprises. And the way we've learned to do that is to start small. Don't, don't take on the whole thing at once. Let's go pick one silo to tackle. Let's integrate that data. Let's show you how nicely that can work together. Then we go to the next one, then the next one. Hey, Billy, I want to push back a little on something you said about not wanting to see regulation. We're already seeing regulation. We're already seeing GDPR. We, we see Facebook this week, you know, saying, oh, we're going to fix ourselves, you know, self-regulation and a lot of skepticism about whether that's enough. Um, can you talk about what you think we will see in terms of standards or, or basic privacy rights for individuals, things that the technologies are going to have to work with and not try to work around or ignore? Yeah, there are definitely going to, the regulations are going to come in some form or fashion. What I would like to not see is as we regulate around individual privacy, that part I think is okay. Anything that gets regulations around um, telling you, Doug, how your data is being used, how artificial intelligence may be being used. Suppose you, you, not that you would, you're totally happy, but suppose one day you went out looking for a job and you, you applied and you were denied. Um, should you know that you were denied based on an algorithm or a human? Does that matter? Should it matter? Right, should we already have that a little bit in GDPR. We have that with you know, banks and insurance companies having to have transparency around their you know, algorithmic decisions on lending and loans. But you know, so it's already there. Is it gonna multiply and have you already learned to live with that? So that part, when it comes to the individual, that part I'm actually okay with. Where I don't want to see it encroach to is the things like international data flow. So if, if government started to say, um, I am not comfortable with Sovereign A, any private company that wants to keep data in Sovereign B, that's going to cause us problems. Like that's over-regulation in my mind. And that's what's going to stifle the, the enterprise ability to be a global company. So... For that, I think transparency is perfectly fine and acceptable to say you have to be transparent, but I don't want it getting to the point where you start to regulate where my data can live as a private enterprise. I, I want that freedom because if I'm working, on, if you're sitting on an airplane and that engine part comes from a manufacturing plant in Germany and it's fulfilled out of a place in Singapore and now you're sitting in the US, Imagine how that gets disrupted if suddenly I've got regulations coming from three sovereigns on where my data is allowed to live and, and how I can use that data. So and we're already kind of seeing it with uh, data sovereignty requirements in Russia and Germany. It's almost like a, a, a data center growth act internally. <laughs> it is. I mean, this is, a, this is a difficult issue, Doug. And we are, um, this is one of those issues where I think it's actually okay to say up front, this is complex. This yeah. is not, we should not react with um, emotional over responses. Like this needs to be debated and really, really well understood. And, and I would argue we need to move slowly when it comes to regulation, but we need to move quickly when it comes to transparency and visibility. That's, that's the positions that we advocate for. 
Billy, my last question to you, I asked Dave Kellogg about advice to CEOs and he talked about and what he learned and he talked about uh, adopting a beginner's mindset and being curious and hungry and free of prejudice. Uh, your advice to CEOs that are looking to take their 20 person company to 500 like you did, what's, what's, what's one advice you would share with them? Yeah, um, you can probably see over my shoulder here that that's, that's, a, that's an American football helmet. I was a college football player and then I coached high school for a long time when I was an engineer. And um, most of what I've learned about teams is comes from more of the sports background. And um, here's a mistake I made that I would love for CEOs to, to really listen to. Um, the advantage of being on a sports team like uh, an American football team is your universe never really gets beyond about 100 to 120 people. That's really easy to communicate to 120 people, especially when they're together every day. And one thing that I would say is as we started to grow, uh, I underestimated how much communication had to happen to the organization. You need to communicate what you think is appropriate amount of time. Then you need to multiply that by 10. And then you need to do it until you're sick. And then when you get sick, you can go throw up and then come back and then do it again because you cannot underestimate how difficult it's going to be to clearly communicate to your organization. It's growing. So that organism is changing every time you hire, every time you bring people in. Um, so over communicate like to a ridiculous degree, you cannot over communicate. So get tight on your messaging, get clear on what you're trying to say. And then whatever those few important things are, you need to say it until you pass out from saying it. And, and then the company might get it. You're living that message. Poor guy is sick and still on the show. We have Billy Bosworth, CEO of Datastax. You crushed it. You were awesome. Please follow Billy at, at, on Twitter at Billy underscore Bosworth. Consider coming back when you're more healthy, although I don't think you can outperform what you just did in the last 20 minutes. You were terrific. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks. Billy. Thanks. That's so true. Uh, tell them what you're going to tell them. Tell them that and then repeat what you told them. Absolutely, absolutely. It's, uh, it's uh, you can, as you said, you can never um, under-communicate, especially when you're going through hyper-growth. Uh, you know, when I joined Salesforce two years ago, we were 18,000 people, we're about 32,000 now. Wow. My guess is by the end of this calendar year, we'll be 40,000. So think about communicating when you're doubling every two years. It's, it's uh, how do you not drift away from your core values and guiding principles? And how do you retract, attract talent? in your organization when you're growing so fast. And by the way, great segue we have because we have a talent recruitment expert. Although uh, our next guest wears multiple hats and does multiple yes. things. So we, we have uh, Virginia Bakaitis, uh, recruiter at Brilliant Leap, editor at digitizingpolaris.com, freelance for the world's leading publications. Her work can be found on CMS Wire, Seeking Alpha, New York Post and daily uh, telegraph. So, so much, I'm not sure if she sleeps at, at all. Yeah. Uh, uh, Virginia writes about uh, what may appear to be you know, unrelated things, but they're not, enterprise technology and what it's like to work in the modern workplace, uh, workplace for the future of work. As I mentioned, her work has been published in numerous uh, publications. She has a new project, uh, Digitizing Polaris, which covers select tech news and views that don't get the sunlight that they deserve elsewhere. It's a great website. Uh, I highly encourage you to go check it out. You can follow Virginia on Twitter at ACT Brilliant, ACT Brilliant. Welcome Virginia to Disrupt TV. Hi. 
You have an awesome background. <laughs> nice art, yeah. So Virginia, we're, we're often in touch uh, in your journalist role. You're often asking uh, analysts at Constellation their opinions on various things. But I haven't talked to you about your, your recruiter role. Tell us, what, what's the state, and I understand you recruit uh, uh, data scientists, data engineers. What's the state of, uh, of that talent gap? Well, actually, I don't think it's as bad as people think it is, or at least it will be getting better because I'm getting probably hundreds of resumes a week from students who are just graduating with data science degrees. Um, and, and they're actually not being hired easily. Um, and that's partly because employers want to hire people who already know what they're doing. And I think ideally internships would are supposed to take people there, but employers are not buying that, you know, just because this person works someplace for three months that they're ready to hit the ground running. Um, so I've got a 16 year old. Don't, don't encourage him to go get a data science degree. Oh, no, no, no. no. I, I think there will be jobs, but um, you know what, but the other part of it, I think is also that computers and machine learning and artificial intelligence are beginning to do more and more of the work. So I think, I don't think enterprises are dumbing down the jobs, but they're hiring more data analysts and fewer data scientists. Sure. I uh, had the uh, opportunity to uh, deliver a keynote at the annual HR summit at Harvard University this week on Tuesday. Wow. And uh, sort of my 400 HR professionals, um, uh, you know, from payroll to recruiting to, you know, all, all all of the various functions at Harvard. There are 14 schools and there's HR pockets in every school. And I started my keynote uh, letting them know that I stopped using resumes in 2013. In fact, I, my, I was looking for a VP of marketing and I went on social media, specifically Twitter, and had a one month recruiting campaign on Twitter, which led to hiring a, a professional out of Toronto, Canada, and, and we were Boston based. And, and, I, and, I, and I, I fast forward to two years ago when I joined Salesforce and I mentioned to the HR community that 90% of my interview with Salesforce was done on private DM messages on Twitter. And in fact, I didn't have a CV and I had no intentions of creating one. And the company was forward looking enough to ignore the fact that I didn't have a resume. So here's my question. What are some of the changes that you see in terms of recruiting? Uh, you know, is your personal brand, your digital footprint and your digital exhaust and are some of these digital native companies really searching you, perhaps using social listening tools, to understand your, 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 your cultural fit and then your competence and capabilities? Uh, what, what are your points of view with that? Yeah, you, yeah, so a lot of employers are still hiring people for just-in-time employment. And I think that that's how the millennials actually want to work, where I'll come here, I'll work here for a year or 18 months or even that you know, give you what I've got and then I'm moving on because I'm bored um, or because, you know, I, you know, they expect to have probably 17 or 18 jobs in their careers, which is, you know, in my day, um, you know, would have been a catastrophe, right? It would mean that you really don't know what you're doing. And, um, for, and they've also been, because of the recession hitting them um, early in, just as they were trying to get jobs, you know, and these guys all became experts at personal branding. And a lot of them have actually built careers on branding. Um, but so those people will, some of them will have Twitter handles, for sure everybody will have Facebook pages, everybody will have their LinkedIn profile pretty well filled out. Um, 
not too many of them actually look for jobs via Twitter, but I place people mostly in large enterprises as opposed to startups. And what's funny with resumes is that people are um, doing all kinds of artsy things, um, making them really nice to look at, uh, making them easy to read. But I actually called somebody last week and said, can you do me a favor and can I have a regular word resume? <laughs> Because, um, so I was going backwards and, you know, and said, look, you know, I get where you're at and, you know, and you're hip and you're cool and everything else, but the people <laughs> I'm handing this to, you know, are going to think like, oh my God, well, who's this weirdo? Um, <laughs> I'm so sure I, Doug has an infographic hip and cool. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm afraid I don't. <laughs> Virginia, let's talk about your long and storied journalist career. Uh, I got out of that game three years ago. Uh, uh, why that blend of uh, recruitment and journalism? And you've been a journalist for 30 plus years. How has that been changing? Yeah, well, no, I'll tell you what. The reason I, I went to, um, to college and did some journalism work. And then after that, I decided that wasn't going to be my career at that time, just because you didn't make enough money. Um, <laughs> you know, completely honest with that. Um, and then as I was doing building of the recruitment firm, um, I was recruiting technology people. And I had to find a way to engage them. And, you know, writing a blog was the very best way to do that. There you go. So you're right to meet people. Uh -huh. Yeah, well, I did. So that was the one reason. And the reason I write about jobs was completely different, where, is where I live. And probably not far from you. I'm in Montclair, um, New Jersey. Ah. Um, I would go to Starbucks, and there would be lines of people forming to talk to me about their jobs and you know how should I apply for this what should I do here what should I do there and I finally got to the point where I was like you know what I know how to write you know uh, and I'm just gonna write this you know I'll write it all down and then everybody can read it but instead of handing out flyers in Starbucks saying this is what you need to know um, I wrote a note to the New York Post you know and said geez I have all this advice for people you know how about giving me an opportunity to write it there um, you know, and so now, you know, I think two or three times a month, I run an article there um, about the job market. What, you know, so we have, you know, obviously a lot of folks that watch the show in startups, enterprise, uh, mid-market. What's the one or two things you look for when you, when you recommend a client, uh, uh, when you recommend a, a, a potential uh, recruit to, to, a, to a company? Uh, how do you, what do you, what's the litmus test? What do you, what do you look for? Uh, do you need well, to... Yeah, so first is hard skills. They have to be there. Okay. You know, so, you know, otherwise, you know, certainly nobody's going to pay a recruiter um, for any other reason. So sure. the hard skills have to be there. Um, you know, and after that, we want people who are engaging because I think in, and the environment's really collaborative right now. So you have to have people who at least can pretend that they like people. Um, <laughs> who are... Um, you know, who, who want to share information, who don't have to be the superstar. They can be a team player pretty much. Um, and who's interested and who are interested in the work. And you try to see if you can look at an individual's values and look at an employer's values, you know, and put the two together. Oh, great. So uh, skills, uh, humility, uh, uh, empathy and, and, and teamwork and and uh, and and uh, so those are those are those are those are, those are all great. Um, I, you, you're, one of your most recent posts talked about uh, Dropbox, uh, an exciting uh, recent IPO, and you talked about how Dropbox has written a new playbook 
for selling business software. And somewhere in the post, you had referenced the CEO talking about, uh, we've written a new playbook for business software. Our millions of users are our are, are best salespeople and have helped us acquire customers with incredible uh, efficiency. As a result, we've reached a billion dollar revenue run rate faster than any other SaaS company in history. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the Dropbox uh, uh, success and what some of the lessons learned? Well, I mean, it's a very interesting story because I think for a long time they told people who wrote about them, like me, that we have a large enterprise play. And then we looked at their numbers when they finally released them and that didn't seem to be the truth at all. Um, and it looked like they were really a consumer play, you know, and then they have some companies yes. that are their customers. You know, then I look at, you know, what Drew wrote the day before the IPO, which is the quote that you read, you know, and I'm thinking, well, you know what, you know, maybe they do have a business play after all. It's just that they're going at it completely differently, you know, than anybody else. And it's basically, I'm going to bring Dropbox, if you're Drew, sorry about that. You know, he really doesn't care who pays for you to yeah. use Dropbox, just as long as you're paying. And you know, we're seeing a lot of IPOs this week, Zora. Dropbox, DocuSign, Pivotal, you know, the common thread I see is, is cloud and the emergence of cloud, uh, cloud models, Zora with it supporting subscription and billing in the cloud, Pivotal with, with Cloud Foundry supporting cloud development. Um, does it say more really the, uh, about uh, cloud emergence? Is that the driver of all these IPOs or is it the uh, sort of condition of the market today and they probably can't get any better conditions than they're getting today? Uh, what are your thoughts on the common themes across everything that's going on with IPOs? Well, you saw as soon as Dropbox did well, everybody put their IPOs, uh, their S1, made their S1s public because they were sitting there already. So everybody sort of unveiled them right at the same time. And I think that it, you know, it's a good, if you don't go public now, you know. When it's not you now when. Company, yeah, when are you going to do it? You know, yeah. so this is probably, you know, and even with the market being as volatile as it is, where it's crazy high one day, you know, and low the next, but, you know, Dropbox pretty much did their IPO on a day where the market sunk, you know, anyway, tremendously the day before, right? Yeah. Right. What, what else are you writing about this week? It's a, a big week. We've got a, you know, post Windows uh, reorg over at Windows, uh, over at uh, Microsoft. Uh, uh, we had the... Uh, NVIDIA event, a uh, lot going on. What are you writing about? Well, I guess right now for CMSWare, I'm actually writing an article that has more to do with jobs than technology. But what's really interesting is that the people coming into the job market are basically telling tech companies and they're telling other companies, like, really, you can keep your snacks and foosball table, you know, pay us enough money and we can <laughs> buy it ourselves. Um, and, and, you know, and they're looking for completely other things. You know, and then one of the things is that they're looking for an opportunity, you know, to give back to society. It, you know, that generation cares about those things. And so if you can pay me, um, you know, if you can pay me my salary and send me to the rainforest and I can help identify birds, you know, for three weeks, you know, that's something I care about. You know, those are the kinds of things that millennials and people coming into the job market, they want to know that the company they're going to go work for are also interested in them and will support their values. I 100% agree. And that's exactly the approach at my company. Um, so so, so uh, you also wrote about what, what happens to AI in 2018. And you had all these predictions from uh, incredible uh, 
smart people. And there was mentions of self-service analytics. There was mentions of more business use cases that will come out in 2018, uh, specifically around verticals. Um, my question to you is your point of view on machine learning and AI specific to um, making more of an informed decision recruiting talent. Uh, are, you, are you seeing companies uh, using technologies, whether it's Workday or whomever, to really understand not only which uh, candidates uh, are the best fit for the company, but also identifying flight risks and identifying employees that are disengaged and perhaps guiding HR and managers in terms of how they can cultivate a more you know, inclusive and engaged culture? But right. so I think that HR uses technology. They're probably at the forefront of it. Um, one is because of the supply and demand thing, and the second thing is is because they can. Um, you know, people are funding it, um, and they have used machine learning and AI type tools really for a while. Um, and then what happens? You know, it's a, just a funny story, not directly with AI and uh, machine learning, but recruiters and job applicants are learning to game the system where they're actually putting things in white type into their resumes so that the keywords appear there mm -hmm. uh, without anybody being able to say you lie because it's not there in black and white or on the screen. Um, and I, wow. you know, aside getting back to the other, you know, big points is that you recruiters literally cannot get through all the resumes and all the applications that they have. So they're gonna have to be, so AI and machine learning um, and other tools has to be able to weed out and saying, okay, Virginia, instead of looking at a thousand resumes this week, you know, we'll show you the 50 that you should really pay attention to. You know, and even going through 50 resumes is a lot of work. Absolutely. Hey, going back to that, uh, the how ML and AI are changing things, it kind of stuck in my mind that you said, that companies are looking for fewer data scientists and more data analysts. I would think that you know the the AI and ML is going to take over the easy stuff, not the hard stuff. Um, tell us more about that that insight. You know, why why we're going to see it change more to that mid level? Well, you know what? I'll tell you that a lot of this is just out of um, practical experience, actually talking to companies. You know, where when I talk to some of the CIOs, you know, I think that data scientists are their hot ticket. And, you know, I basically come in with, you know, my power cell that way. And they say, oh, you know what, really, we're not having that hard time with those. You know, and what we really want, you know, is a data analyst. And we figure they can get most of the job done. Um, and those people know how to use the tools and things like that. And the, and I think I actually wrote someplace recently that, most of the data work isn't going to be, you know, that story that we hear about people where, you know, you've got a data scientist staring at a bunch of data and, and all of a sudden they've got some giant revelation and they walk into the CEO's office and say, you know, thought we're going to change the world. Um, you know, companies need maybe two or three of those people. Um, you know, and the rest of the stuff can almost be automated where, you know, AI or machine learning is going to see something and then directly, and you, a person will never be involved, you know, and, and then the change just plain gets made by the machine itself because literally by the time you give the information to somebody, to a real life person who has to make a decision on it, um, and you find them and they read it and they look at it, you know, the moment of opportunity is passed. Okay, it's sealed. I'm going to encourage my son to go to art school. Yeah, <laughs> liberal arts in the in the in the. Hey, I got a degree in English. Maybe he should follow in my footsteps. <laughs>
you know, if you look at the 1973 job application for Steve Jobs uh, education, English Lit. So, yeah, so absolutely. Well, Virginia, thank you so much for uh, being on Disrupt TV. We uh, encourage our audience to follow Virginia at, on Twitter at ActBrilliant. Uh, incredibly insightful blogs and articles on digitizingpolaris.com. We look forward to having you back. Thank you so much for your insights. Great. That's fun. Take care. Thank, Thank you. you. So uh, this was our 100th episode of uh, TV. Yes. So thanks, Doug, for not only pinch hitting, but hitting a grand slam. You were terrific. Well, thank you. Um, incredible energy, insightful questions. Next week, our episode uh, 101, Disrupt TV, we have Bruce Richardson. He's the chief enterprise strategist at Salesforce. A guy you know a little bit, right? One of, he may be my favorite person at the company. So, uh, so uh, and I'll try not to say that next week so he doesn't blush, but it maybe it is. I think it's true. <laughs> we have Nikki Baird, VP of Retail Innovation at Aptos. And Guy Corton. That's Guy. Guy Corton. Our old friend Guy Corton. You know what? It's G-U-Y. I don't know how you say Guy. <laughs> it is Guy. I did that a few times the first time I met him. and hey, He slapped me silly on that. Thanks for correcting me now because next week he's going to be really, you know, impressed that I pronunciated G-U-Y as Guy. Um, <laughs> Corton, VP Industry Solution Strategies, Retail and Fashion at Infor retail. So obviously the theme next week is going to be uh, strategy and, and retail. So thanks for watching episode 100. Uh, thanks, Aubrey, uh, our producer who helped us connect with close to 250 unique guests in the last two years. And um, we look forward to seeing you next Friday. And maybe Ray won't be on a train, plane, or automobile. <laughs> Have a great weekend, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Bye.